Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. Ocean Advocate is Candace Crespi. Candace is the campaign director at Oceanic Preservation Society, working to expose complex environmental issues in order to protect the ocean and the planet for future generations. Hi, Candace. Welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. Thank you so much for having me, and hi to everyone out there listening in. Yeah, very excited to have you on the show, and yeah, warm welcome to all of our listeners as well. So, yeah, Candace, I'm really excited to have you on the show today. I've admired the work of Oceanic Preservation Society for quite a while now, and I'm so excited to have someone like you, an influential part of their team, on the show to share what they do and also just your perspectives on your work. So I want to start out by talking about two sentences that are pretty prominent on the Oceanic Preservation Society website. And they are short sentences that go right together. And it's expose the truth, protect the planet. So I want to ask you, Candace, as a member of the Oceanic Preservation Society team, how does this describe and align the mission of OPS, you know, to you expose the truth, protect the planet? Yeah. So OPS, we see ourselves in a very unique role. While there's a lot of groups out there working on the same issues, sometimes people just don't get it. So we see ourselves as a unique organization that can expose really complex global environmental problems, whether it's cetacean captivity, shark finning issues, or the methane problem that's often not talked about when it comes to climate change. And we like to push those issues in really unique, fun, different ways that haven't been done before. And we do that through a multitude of ways. Major films, uh, The Cove, Racing Extinction, photography, storytelling, and most importantly, and my favorite part of my job, is collaboration with other groups. Um, There's so many incredible NGOs out there working on kind of the same issues. And we like to get everyone on the same page and figure out a way to be stronger together because ultimately people power is how we're going to make a difference in this world. And And that's how OPS likes to do it. We like to take an issue, show it in a way that hasn't been done before and get people either intrigued, inspired, or ready to take action. And uh, the word that I like to use is a mind bomb. We want to get someone thinking to give them that choice to, do I want to do something about this or is it something I don't care about? And so as the campaign director, you've been in this position for about five years now. What is your role? Like, what are the primary elements of your job? Yeah, we're a very small team at OPS. And my role as the campaign director is to bridge the incredible work that our filmmakers and producers make and connect it with the incredible fans that we've made throughout the last 10 years. So let's take, for example, The Cove. People see this movie and they're inspired. I don't want to go to SeaWorld. I want to save the dolphins. What can I do? My job as the campaign director is to give people those tangible tools to actually make a difference. Another part of my job is to come up with new ways to run campaigns. 
for example, uh, shark finning. A few years ago, people really didn't understand the global war on sharks was happening. The media likes us to believe that sharks are these scary, vicious creatures that need to be exterminated from our seas, when in all actuality, without sharks, our oceans are going to collapse. So we like to take these issues that are out there, but people don't understand, and push them in a different way to inspire people, not through destruction, but through inspiration, that sharks are amazing. They've been around for 400 million years. They've survived all the mass extinctions, and in one generation, we're wiping them out. So that's kind of my role is connecting people to the big screen, to every day, what can I do? Whether it's boycotting a company, making a phone call, signing a petition, changing your Facebook profile picture, for example. Yeah. And so instead of someone just watching a film, you really help to complete the whole picture, make it a campaign, you know, combine all those elements with the film. Exactly. No point in inspiring people if it stops there. We've got to turn it into a movement. We don't just make films. We're trying to get people to really move that needle. Studies show that you only need 10% of the population to get something to change. And that's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to get everyone on board. We're not trying to change people who are big time trophy hunters and make them realize what they do is wrong on both a moral and ethical standpoint. We're trying to rally the folks that get these issues but feel helpless. What can I do? How can one person make a difference? And that's where OPS comes in. And so a big element of what you guys do kind of in these campaigns and linked with the films that you make is conservation initiatives. You know, you touched on a few already. In your five years working with OPS, what's been one of the most successful and do you feel impactful conservation initiatives that you've gotten to be a part of through OPS? Yes. So definitely our consumer driven campaigns to get companies, corporations to change their policy in hopes of protecting species on the brink, both in relation to dolphins and whales and uh, the shark campaign work. We've gotten so many airliners, hotel chains, uh, shipping companies to completely change their policies, to no longer ship shark fins, to refuse to ship live uh, cetaceans, so whales, dolphins, porpoises. And to see the amount of progress that's happened in five years, it blows me away and it really does give me hopes. It's not just people that care, it's these big chains coming together. Um, For example, Hilton Hotels Worldwide banned shark fin soup. The Miami Dolphins, Mattel, Taco Bell have completely cut ties with SeaWorld. The list goes on and on, and um, the one I'm most proud of and still working on is our recent campaign to get large shipping companies to refuse to ship shark fins, and we've been successful with DHL, with UPS, and now we're working on FedEx, and um, we're not going to stop till they fold because ultimately they need to make their customers happy, and we get fans reaching out every day that see our posts on social media, that read our blogs and are willing to you know, cancel their contracts and switch over to a more sustainable company because ultimately people have power. So that's what I've enjoyed working on. Uh, but the list goes on and on with the amount of campaigns we work on. And so prior to working with Oceanic Preservation Society, at one point you were working with Greenpeace, obviously a super big name in the world of conservation. Some people, you know, think it's a bit radical. Some people think that they are creating really great change. I'm, you know, kind of somewhere in the middle. What was it like working for Greenpeace for you? 
Working for Greenpeace was completely different ball game than working for OPS, which is a very small organization, handful of people, where Greenpeace, very large entity, both domestically here in the U.S. and abroad. And um, from my experience, um, I loved working for Greenpeace. It gave me my, my roots for environmental activism. They taught me how to run an effective grassroots campaign. They put me through... Uh, these nonviolent direct action trainings that prepared me for a life of activism, both in my career and personally as an activist, how to properly talk to press, how to, um, yeah, how to kind of sometimes break the rules and ask for forgiveness instead of permission sometimes. And the campaign strategies that I learned at Greenpeace have been essential to continuing my work now at OPS and using a lot of the same tactics they use from creative communication uh, to direct actions to corporate campaigns. I have recently spent some time with some Greenpeace colleagues out at the International Whaling Commission meetings, and it's really nice to come full circle when you realize this activism world really isn't that big, and we're all working on the same issues. And although environmental groups get reputations and you know don't always get along, ultimately we're all on the same page. And if we all work together, we're going to get a lot more done. Yeah, well, it's great that you, you know, have been a part of a number of different activism organizations, and you can kind of connect everybody even more so and create these campaigns that are even more effective. And so I want to start to get into the films that OPS makes. And before we kind of get into talking about The Cove and talking about Racing Extinctions, your two main films, I want to ask you about the filming techniques that the team at OPS uses when they're making films like The Cove and Racing Extinction. To me, the best word I can think to describe them is sneaky. <laughs> um, can you can you describe to listeners, I know you're not necessarily the one doing the filming, but can you describe to listeners what filming techniques OPS uses to, quote, expose the truth? Absolutely. We use a lot of filming techniques at OPS because ultimately to expose something, there's a lot of layers that have to be sifted through. So when you start with our first film, The Cove, we went out there with a lot of gear. You should have seen the piles and piles and piles of gear to try to sneak into a country and get away with it. Everyone knew we were coming. And with that film, uh, we used a lot of techniques. It was not only, you know, just getting kind of the B-roll footage, what's going on in the area, but it was also the start of our undercover career with placing hidden cameras in the trees, placing hidden um, uh, sound recording devices under the water to give people that perspective of what it actually is like for a dolphin hunt, drive, and slaughter to happen. In Racing Extinction, we definitely stepped it up a little bit. With time, technology changes. It gets uh, a little bit more awesome every year, and as filmmakers, uh, we love that. So... In Racing Extinction, we still used a lot of undercover cameras. They were just a lot smaller and sneakier. Um, so whether it's walking through endangered species-filled markets in China or setting up meetings with ivory dealers, um, having those hidden cameras are really important. And it's also really important to make sure that they're damn good undercover cameras because getting caught overseas with something like this can get us in a lot of trouble. Aside from that, when we're doing our topside footage, our B-roll, we're using some of the best cameras out there. Really high quality, 4K, beautiful, beautiful stuff. In addition to that, um, in our second film, we used a really special new technology from a company called FLIR. 
And we were able to, using these special filters on the cameras, expose things that have never been seen before when it comes to the climate change uh, campaign work. So we're able to, in real time, show carbon emissions, show methane emissions, where you tell people, yeah, you drive a car, you know, all this dirty stuff comes out. But it's like, if you don't see it, I don't really get it. So we decided, all right, enough is enough. We have to expose this for what it is. So we are very fortunate to get to use this incredible technology to show people what natural gas leaks look like, what methane bubbling out of a lake looks like, permafrost just completely releasing so much methane into our environment. And it's thanks to people doing incredible work with technology and cameras that we're able to show things like that. So I want to get into talking about the two films, The Cove and Racing Extinction. You know, you mentioned a little bit about The Cove. For listeners that haven't seen The Cove, can you explain to them what is The Cove all about? So The Cove was our first film, and um, what it basically did was expose a dirty little secret that happens off the coast of Japan in a town called Taiji, where... um, A very small group of fishermen go out, they round up herds of dolphins using um, techniques where they find them, they use underwater sound by banging on poles to corral these extremely sensitive animals that use sonar and echolocation. Um, They're very sound sensitive, and these fishermen corral these dolphins into a small place that we call the cove. And then the dolphin's fate is at that point up to the fishermen and their allies. Some of the dolphins get plucked out of the water and shipped overseas to be made into puppets at amusement parks like SeaWorld, like um, the Georgia Aquarium, places like that where they are exploiting these animals to do tricks for food to make money. The other dolphins that are caught are most likely going to be slaughtered, and that meat ended up in a lot of different places. Fortunately, with the film work we did and kind of blowing the lid off what was really happening with really gory footage showing a beautiful ocean that turns blood red from literally the blood of dolphins, um, we were able to get the local schools there to stop serving dolphin meat to children. And this was due to um, us exposing that dolphin meat is tainted with mercury. It's very, very bad. It goes above the limits of what's acceptable by health organizations. And um, in addition to those themes, the Cove also exposed overfishing, the corruption of the International Whaling Commission, and most importantly showed how most of the people in Japan, a country of 127 million, really had no idea this was going on. So the campaign continues, the hunt still happened, Um, It's being done on a much smaller scale. There's less dolphins that lose their lives, but these animals are still being shipped around the world to dolphin parks and dolphin swimmeth programs. Luckily, we have amazing partners with Rico Berry's Dolphin Project. He was the one-time dolphin trainer turned dolphin activist who we featured in the Cove, and we're working with his team to really bring the message of the Cove and mercury contamination home to the people of Japan because ultimately it has to come from within the country itself. People in America get it. We were very lucky to have Blackfish come out after our film, which um, just kept the momentum going with anti-captivity, but the problem's still overseas. So that campaign wages on. Out of curiosity, is the film translated into Japanese for 
the Japanese audience? Yes, absolutely. And um, for a while, we did not have a Japanese version available to stream for free. And like I mentioned, we're working with the Dolphin Project to distribute that free of cost all over Japan to use it as an educational tool. Um, we made a documentary to change something that was happening. It's not to get credit. It's not to make movies. That's not what documentary filmmakers do. We're trying to expose this, save dolphins, change the attitudes, and um, help Brick and his team put an end to it once and for all. Yeah. And so to get into Racing Extinction, your second film and honestly an incredible film, I had the chance to see it at the Blue Ocean Film Festival in 2015. And yeah, I mean, I... I think the entire audience was crying at one point and laughing at one point and then just extremely awestruck at one point and then at the end very motivated and you know I think it's really representative of the fact that your team at Oceanic Preservation Society really makes films to change the world like you said so I want to ask you for you personally as someone that that loves the ocean and has dedicated your life to helping to protect it. What is it like for you to be part of a team that's making such a powerful film and tackling such a large and pressing topic for listeners? If you haven't seen racing extinction, it's basically documenting different aspects of how humans are causing the sixth major extinction on our planet. So Candace, what, what, what's it like for you to be part of the team? It's a dream come true. I always say if you're you know, doing something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I really feel like that's true. Um, our entire team, we're not one of those Monday through Friday, 40 hours a week people. We're the 24-7 type team. And it's because we all are so passionate and so dedicated to what we do. I've got the best coworkers in the world. I'm very fortunate. To be part of it on the flip side is also um, sometimes really daunting and really frustrating. There is so many issues out there that we need to work on. There are so many people out there that want to help. And sometimes making that connection without getting overwhelmed um, is really difficult. We see a lot of death and destruction in our world. And we, after we made The Cove, we realized that a lot of people were unwilling to watch because of the blood, because of the gore, because of an animal that they loved being hurt. So with Racing Extinction, we did change our tactics a little bit kind of brought people on an emotional journey of here's what's going on. We're not going to show you the most brutal aspects of a manta ray being hunted or a, you know, a live animal being killed in a market. We skipped that part this time. It tried to show people like you can, you can get mad about things. That's okay. But ultimately you got to do something about it, even if it's something small. And it's amazing to be able to hear the stories from our fans that come in every day, phone calls, emails, social media messaging of, I've been a vegan since I've seen your film. I got my school to cancel our trip to SeaWorld, and we're going to go whale watching instead. That is by far the best part of my job, is seeing the people out there that we're trying to reach actually making a difference. For well, me personally, it's the younger generation that gets my, that gets my heartstrings going. I love working with kids. I love getting the, the younger generations inspired to get their parents to make some changes in their own lives. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, what 
people give you feedback on in terms of what changes they're making in their daily life. And I know you were very influential in obviously as the campaign director uh, in um, starting the campaign with the film Racing Extinction hashtag start with one thing. Honestly, because of that, you know, and a number of other factors going on in my head, I went from being a vegetarian to being a vegan, you know, largely in part due to watching Racing Extinction and really thinking to myself, okay, I'm already doing a lot, but I want to do more. You know, this really motivates me to do more. And so, yeah, shortly after that, I became vegan and I know every day that I'm making my impact on the planet a bit more positive than before I watched Racing Extinction. So can you talk a bit about the campaign, hashtag start with one thing, and kind of where that concept came from and how that has just exploded? Yeah, and um, kudos and thank you for making that that switch from vegetarianism to veganism. It's incredible how you can, you know, three, maybe four or five times a day, make a decision that not only saves animals, but really makes an impact on the planet. So thank you from our entire team. We're, we're a bunch of vegans, so um, we're right there with you. And the Start With The One Thing movement was a collaboration between us, our campaign uh, partners, who are Vulcan Inc. and Vulcan Productions, and Discovery, who bought the rights to the film after they saw it at Sundance. And together, OPS, Vulcan, and Discovery decided we have to be able to give people a way to make a difference without overwhelming them. We did test studies, we did research groups, and found that people understood the issues, but when it came down to what am I gonna do do about it, that's where they all had a blank stare on their face with, I don't know where to start. There's so many issues to work on, but what do I do? So Start With One Thing came out of um, basically test groups and a bunch of research realizing we had to give people something small and easy. We all ended up having to take it a bit of a step further. You tell people start with one thing and sometimes they, they can't figure out what that one thing should be. So we created an interactive website and tried to give people the opportunity to do that one thing no matter what issue they cared about. If it was global warming, we taught them how to practice Meatless Monday and turn it into Meatless every day. If they were big forest people, we taught them how to take action to make sure that they're only buying things that are free of conflict palm oil, which is decimating rainforests, um, especially in Sumatra. Um, if you're an ocean type person, we gave you lots to start with one things um, to choose from, whether it was, if you're going to eat seafood, eat sustainable seafood. If you are a big diver, choose to go somewhere that um, has really beautiful ecotourism instead of a place that exploits marine mammals, for example. And it's been really successful. And our favorite part of the Start With One Thing campaign is that people have taken it and run. We get all the times environmental groups at schools who send us their projects, their PowerPoints, showing how they're taking action at home and in their classrooms to go green, to be more conscious, and to inspire the next generation of leaders to do the same. And so another element of Racing Extinction that I found to be powerful and cutting edge and just, you know, everything great was the use of projections in the film. And I know you guys do projections not for the film as well all over the world. Can you talk about what those projections are? Describe them for listeners. Sure. So we've realized over the years the power of media that... You know, you can be in a room with people that speak 15 different languages and you throw an image up on on the wall 
and everyone can get it. Everyone connects without saying a word. So we decided, all right, well, let's take the power of imagery and let's give animals the biggest platform we possibly can. And fortunately, we have had some incredible partners that have helped us do groundbreaking mass media projections in a variety of places. Um, we started in 2014. We did projections on the United Nations headquarter building in New York City, where we reached over 10 million people. The trailer of our uh, projection event was viewed over 200,000 times. And it kind of kickstarted this, all right, projections are a really good way to reach people. Let's keep it going. Um, since then, we have done major projection events on the Empire State Building. That was absolutely huge. If you haven't seen it, just Google Empire State Building projections and you can't miss it. We took endangered species, beautiful eco landscapes, art from Android Jones, and we put it on the Empire State Building for hours alongside the music of um, our composer J. Ralph from our film and gave animals the most beautiful show that you could have ever seen. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. It was emotional. You were able to look these animals in the eye on a building in the middle of you know, the Big Apple and connect with them. Um, and it started major conversations. It hit all the major media throughout the world, trending on all the social media sites. And have since then continued to do projections. Our most recent big ones were on the Vatican with the blessing of the Pope in collaboration with them. Uh, we called it um, Our Common Home, and it was basically um, a projection event to get people connected that we all share one planet. No species in, is more important than another. And stay tuned. We are not done with our projections. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Can the public know when a projection is going to happen before it does, or is it always spontaneous and it just happens, you know, who's walking by gets to see it? It depends on the projection event. There have been some events where we do, we'll do smaller events for local campaigns. For example, um, on the West Coast, we've had some campaign initiatives to pass wildlife bans. So endangered species parts can't be traded through the West Coast ports. And we've done projection events in uh, collaboration with screenings, for example, and those we do advertise. When there are these bigger events on buildings with higher security, I guess I'll say, we often do have limitations on how much we can promote it for security risks and making sure that we're able to get to the place um, without too big of a crowd. Uh, but with the way social media works, um, we don't really need to do too much advertising. People get word, starts getting posted, everyone comes out. I remember walking through the streets in New York City while we were doing the projections on the Empire State Building, and there was not a block where there wasn't someone phone up taking videos, taking pictures, what's going on? I've never seen something this beautiful in my life. But I, uh, I can say that for future projections, if we are able to pre-promote them, we'll always send out newsletters, we'll post on our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter pages. So all you uh, listeners out there, make sure you're following the Oceanic Preservation Society, The Cove, and Racing Extinction on social. And we'll keep you up to date. Yeah, definitely. So... With that, listeners, like Candace said, connect with OPS and The Cove and Racing Extinction on social media. When I post this podcast episode, I'll be linking to all of their social media channels. There's a lot of them, so you guys can connect with them and you know follow along with all the amazing projects that they've got going on. And I'll also link to their website. It's opsociety.org. 
and you guys can you know watch the trailers of their films learn more about them their whole team and just get super inspired sign up for their newsletter whatever you want and so candace i want to thank you so much for all of the amazing work that you do for the ocean and the planet and just making this place better informing individuals and inspiring individuals and i also want to thank you for being on the show today i really enjoyed talking with you Yes, thank you so much. I love listening to your podcast and it's truly an honor to be on here. And to everyone out there listening, like, thank you for caring about these issues. Sometimes uh, the world's problems can be really daunting and it can feel like we don't have power, but that is the absolute furthest from the truth. Every single movement throughout history has been won by people coming together, whether it's civil rights, women's rights, whatever it is. Um, So I just like to leave you with one of my favorite quotes from Margaret Mead, which is, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So please find what you're passionate about. Make a difference. We have power. Let's take it back. And thank you so much again, Allison. You just heard Candace Crespi, Campaign Director of Oceanic Preservation Society, working to expose complex environmental issues in order to protect the ocean and the planet for future generations. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at oceanallison.com and tune into next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.